Well, let's continue to worship by taking God's Word and turning to the book of James. James chapter 5, and I'm going to read from verse 1, and I will go as far as verse 11, and I, I ask you to pay careful attention and follow along and listen closely and carefully to what the Spirit of God says through the Word of God. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers. So that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Here's the question with which I want to begin this day. It's very straightforward. Simply this, have have you ever been the victim of injustice? Have you ever suffered an injustice? That's the past tense. Let me use the present tense right now. Are you suffering an injustice? Have we ever experienced the injustice of abandonment? That's an injustice, isn't it? Your father had a God-given responsibility to care for you, provide for you, and watch over you. He walked away from it all when you were a very small child. He decided he had better things to do. He decided he had to go find himself. He decided he had to be true to himself, whatever he left. For all intents and purposes, he rejected you. He rejected the family. He has never been confronted. And he has never, ever been held accountable. How do you handle that? That's an injustice. That isn't fair. And that may very well be your circumstances this day or your circumstances may be very close to, might very well approximate what I just described. How do you handle it, friend? How do you cope 
with the injustice. Have we ever experienced the injustice of abuse? A family member took advantage of his position and preyed on your innocence. God forbid that pertains to anybody in this room, but I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a realist. God forbid. It came to light at some point and um, denied, of course, and the rest of the family simply wanted to avoid the public scandal. And so it was all hush, hush, silence, silence. And um, obviously some distance between the family and that individual. But the man, the man has never been confronted. The man has never acknowledged any wrongdoing. You're still living with the emotional scars. The man has never been punished. That's an injustice. How do you handle it, my friend? How do we cope with that kind of an injustice? Have we ever experienced the injustice of prejudice? Because of your race, your accent, your job status, social status, your physical disability, you have been fairly, unfairly treated on numerous occasions. You are tired, you are sick and tired of the assumptions people make about you. You are tired of being overlooked, you are tired of being victimized, you are tired of the deep-rooted ignorance. It's an injustice. How do you handle it? How do we live with it? Have we ever experienced the injustice of persecution? Let's step outside our box, our world. You're a believer. Let's imagine living in Egypt or Iraq or Syria. Your church has been burned to the ground, your shop has been vandalized, and your cousin has simply disappeared. The police seem incapable or perhaps just downright unwilling to stop the harassment. No one is arrested, no one is charged, no one is punished. The government talks about intervention, but is unwilling to take any tangible steps. Where do you go? What do you do? How do you flee? Or more to the point, how are you going to cope with that kind of injustice? What are you going to do? Have we ever experienced the injustice of corruption? You work hard. That's good. It's God-honoring. You work hard. You pay your taxes. You help others in need. And you save what you can. But the system, the system no longer favors you, friend. It no longer favors you. You are behind it all the time. The big banks create a financial mess that sends your business into a downward spiral. But they're never held accountable. Never held accountable. The collective greed that gave rise to the financial crisis is never addressed. And you're one small voice and absolutely powerless to do anything about it. It's an injustice. What are you going to do? How are you going to handle it? Have I got your attention? It's a good question. How do we cope with... How do we handle injustice? James responds to the question. He has set the context in the first six verses. And he has described an unbelievable injustice in those verses. He has pointed his finger at the rich. He does not have the rich, the wealthy in general in view. He has a very specific 
group before him. He has set his sights on the target. And he gives a very detailed description in those verses, the opening verses of chapter 5, and he tells us that the rich he has in mind are guilty of hoarding their wealth. Verse 2, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. He says, secondly, they are guilty of oppressing their laborers. Verse 4, behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. He adds another description. He says they are guilty of indulging their senses. Verse 5, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. And then he says finally in verse 6, they're guilty of satisfying their cravings at the expense of others. You have condemned. You have murdered the righteous person. You have walked all over him. He does not resist you because he cannot resist you. He is powerless to resist you. You are victimizing him. This is a grave injustice. And so what does James say in verse 7? Be patient. Therefore, brothers. He is writing to a very specific audience. And he is writing to Christians who are the victims of of this injustice. He is writing to a body of believers who are suffering at the hands of this group, this, the wealthy, uh, whom James identifies as the rich, those who have taken advantage of their position and they are oppressing the have-nots and those who are simply powerless, absolutely powerless to do anything about it. It is a terrible injustice. James, how am I supposed to handle that kind of injustice? It might be the injustice of oppression, like this. It might be the injustice of abuse, the injustice of abandonment, the injustice of racism, prejudice, whatever. You fill in the blank. Here I am. I'm a Christian. I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this has happened. Not only has it happened, it keeps happening. And it isn't fair. This is not fair. It is not right. How am I supposed to handle it? How am I supposed to cope with that? How am I supposed to get through life? Here's what I want us to notice. Let me give it to you right at the outset. James gives us three commands. If you don't like that word, there it is. Three commands to obey. He then supports those commands with three examples to follow. And then he supports those examples by giving us three truths to cherish. All right, that's my sermon. I'm going to develop that a little bit. I'm going to develop that a lot. But uh, friend, uh, this is God's word to you this day. And uh, perhaps already the word of God has struck home, has struck a chord. And you can empathize with this, this concept of injustice. And you are able to enter into, perhaps too closely, some of those narratives, some of those examples I described for you. Well, this is the word of the Lord to you. If you were ever to come and visit me and raise some of these issues, 
share some of these injustices, some of these things that he did, she did, what happened, if you were to share them with me, uh, this is the text I would take you to. And I would begin by sharing with you three commands to obey. All right? Here's command number one, verse seven. Be patient. Be patient. Why do we need to be patient in the face of injustice? We need to be patient in the face when facing injustice because it makes us susceptible to growing agitated. When we experience something that isn't fair, and when perhaps it goes on and on, uh, we become agitated. We become agitated. Why? We want answers now. We want changes right now. We want solutions yesterday. We want, we want, we want, but there's no change. Perhaps there's not even any possibility for change. Here I am, here I'm stuck, this is what's going on, or this is what happened, and I have been victimized, and I am powerless to, to, to effect change, to be an instrument for change, and so the, 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 the susceptibility that arises is this, agitation. And so James gives this very pointed command, oh brothers, oh brothers, 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 be patient. Second command is this, establish your hearts. It's right there in verse 8. He actually begins by repeating the first command, you also be patient. And then he adds, establish your hearts. When we face injustice, we need to establish our hearts because injustice renders us susceptible to growing fatigued. There's no end in sight. And perhaps you've been there, that feeling of hopelessness sets in. It's very Sisyphean. Do you remember that expression, Sisyphus? Back in Greek, Roman mythology, who was Sisyphus? Remember that poor soul? What did he have to do in the, in the underworld? He had to roll the boulder up the hill. And as soon as it reached the top, what happened? Back down to the bottom it went. Then what did he have to do? Push it back up again. And as soon as he reached the top, what happened? Down it came. Then what did he have to do? You get, you're getting the idea? He had to push the stone, roll it back up to the top. This was his, a punish, his punishment. It was unending. Sisyphean. It was a helpless, it was a hopeless situation. No end in sight. No escape. And injustice will make us feel that way. It makes us susceptible to growing fatigued. And so James gives this second command. Establish your hearts. Tie them down. Make sure they're tied down. They're rooted and they're firm. And then he adds a third command into verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers. Do not grumble, murmur against one another, brothers. So I understand the need for patience. I understand, I get it, the need for establishing my heart. But this one, this one is a bit of a curveball. This is a knuckleball. Do not grumble against one another. What has this got to do with anything? It's got everything to do with this situation that James is describing. 
Because when we face injustice, we are susceptible to growing irritated. And when we grow irritated in the face of injustice, that irritation actually arises out of what? The fact that in our hearts, consciously or subconsciously, what's going on? We are questioning what? Either God's power or God's wisdom or God's goodness. And we are becoming irritated. Here's the thing. We know we can't take on God. But that irritability is going to be expressed, isn't it? Oh, who have I just found? You. Okay. The irritability is going to vent. And it will be you, my friends. You will be the object of my irritation and my agitation the focus of my grumbling and my murmuring because of my discontent in the midst of my circumstances, a discontent that is really directed at God. What am I going to do? Well, I'm going to focus my attention right here. Hence the commandment, do not grumble against one another, brothers. Did you get the three commandments? Number one, verse seven, be patient. Number two, verse eight, establish your heart. Number three, verse nine, do not grumble against one another. And so there we are, we're in, we're in my office together and we're discussing these things. You have shared with me your plight, your circumstances, and it is grievous, it is, it is serious, and it is unfair. And it is a terrible load and, and an unbelievable burden to bear. And if there are things we can do to change it and to rectify it and address it, of course we do those things. But we're really here engaging with a situation where it's out of your control. It's, you know, it's, just, it's beyond your fingertips to change it. And so I've brought you to God's Word, and I've brought you to James 5, and I've given you the last thing you wanted to hear. You were looking for a shoulder to cry on. Well, the Kleenex box is there, and we weep with those who weep, don't we? And there is a time and there's a place for that. But now I have shared these three commands. Be patient, establish your hearts, do not grumble against one another. And you're saying, thanks a lot. How is that helping me? How is that in any way rectifying this situation? And so I go back to the first command, be patient. Now let me give you three examples to follow. They're right there in the text. Example number one, farmers. Verse seven, be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See? James is very earthy, isn't he? I hope you've picked up on that by now if you've been accompanying this series. Very earthy, very down to earth. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. I should have checked. I should have done my homework this past week. Brian, help me out. You garden. You've planted, right? By now, Brian's planted. Tomatoes, peas, beans, okay. So those of you who have gardens, you've planted already. And out you went, you picked the date, you marked it on your calendar, you got the seed, you prepared the soil, out you went, and you sowed your seed. The next morning, you went straight out there, and you were so disappointed. Why? Nothing was there. You didn't go out the next morning expecting anything to be there. You know what? The seed must germinate. 
The shoot at some point, some way must emerge from the soil. It must reach maturity. And then the fruit, vegetables or whatever it is, there they are. And a couple of months from now, you enjoy the harvest. Until then, you must be what? Patient, oh friends, farmers, farmers, farmers. The reward is coming. The harvest is coming. It's coming. It's absolutely guaranteed. And you and I may not see very much of it in this life. As a matter of fact, we may see absolutely nothing of it in this life. We might not enjoy the fruit of any of the seed that has sown in this life. But we must be patient. Why? Because the harvest is coming. It will come. But James, he doesn't leave it there. He inserts a second example. Prophets. Verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. I don't think that's a throwaway phrase at the end. It seems a bit redundant. Take the prophets. Why does he add who spoke in the name of the Lord? We know they spoke in the name of the Lord. Why does he feel this burden? Why does he feel compelled to say, take as an example, the suffering and patience, brothers, of the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Because in that phrase, he is actually identifying the cause of their suffering. All they did was speak in the name of the Lord. But in speaking in the name of the Lord, what did they do? They told a whole lot of people what they didn't want to hear. And by telling a whole bunch of people what they didn't want to hear, what was the result? It was suffering. And so he is drawing a line there that as believers in this world, yes, we may suffer for the sake of righteousness. Yes, we may suffer for the sake of truth. We may suffer for taking the name of the Lord. We might suffer for speaking the name of the Lord. We might suffer grave injustice, whatever it is. But look to them, look to them and take them as an example of suffering and patience. And so you can go back and you can read the story of Jeremiah and, and the things the man suffered. Isaiah, Micah. Run through the list of them all. And then you fast forward, you jump into the New Testament and you have the greatest prophet himself. The prophet of all prophets, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he declares, it. he makes it clear, doesn't he, in the Sermon on the Mount. He's declaring, blessed are the, the poor in spirit for theirs of the kingdom of heaven. And how does he end the Beatitudes? Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he adds another blessing. Blessed are those who speak ill of you and hate you and persecute you on my sake. And he says, be happy, be content, rejoice. Why? For so they persecuted the prophets before you. And he adds another phrase in there, doesn't he? And your reward is? Your reward is great. Oh, when we suffer injustice, I think this perhaps is James' main point in this verse. When we suffer injustice, we're actually in very good company. We're, in very, we're keeping very good company. We are standing in the line of the prophets. We are standing in the direct line of the Lord Jesus Christ himself who suffered the greatest injustice and dignity ever experienced by any human being on the face of the earth. I often say this to people, especially when I'm responding to the statement no one understands what I've been through. And my response is always what? Jesus does. I might not. I might not have ever been where you've been. I might not ever be where you're going to be. 
And it's very possible you've never been where I've been. But I have this great assurance that the Lord Jesus Christ has. And when it comes to injustice, when it comes to the injustice of oppression and abuse, abuse and abandonment and, and rejection, oh, the Lord Jesus knew a mountain full of injustice, did he not? And yet what did he do? He committed himself to the Lord. And with patience, he set his face. He set his face like a flint to the cross. Why? Because of the joy, because of the reward that was set before him. That's the second example. And then there's a third example. We're very familiar. A third example to follow. follow. Very familiar with this one. Job, verse 11. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And so we have the example of farmers. Maybe that one doesn't quite do it for you. We have the example of the prophets. Yeah, okay, I'm getting it. But here's a third tremendous example. Job himself. Job, Scripture tells us, a man who was blameless and upright, a man who feared God and turned away from evil. That didn't put him beyond suffering, though, did it? It didn't remove him from the realm of hardship. And you know the story as well as I do. Everything is taken from him. Everything robbed from him, if you like, before his very eyes. And as we make our way through the book of Job, we read that Job's own words, own declaration and assessment of his predicament, though God slay me, though God slay me, I will hope in him. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. How is he able to say that? James tells us there in verse 11, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. I think it's the purpose of the Lord as it pertains to Job. And what was the purpose of the Lord as it pertains to Job? It was the revel a revelation of the Lord, that the Lord is compassionate, and the Lord is merciful. He has more than enough compassion to sustain Job in the midst of his affliction. And he has more than enough mercy to cover the multitude of Job's sins. Oh, learn from Job. You know, Job, it, 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 he is such an important figure. He's such an important figure, lest we fall into the trap of thinking, yeah, Job, Abraham, David, Isaac, Joseph, these guys were superhuman. I mean, you know, Ruth, Naomi, Esther, these were superhumans who walked the face of the earth, and I could never be like that, never live like that. Oh, you're putting up there such a, such a high ideal and placing them on such a pedestal, and I fall so far short of that pedestal. As, as I was reflecting on Job and feeling a little down as I was comparing myself to Job this past week, I, I finally landed on a, on, a, on a very important question. Do you know what it was? It's this. Was Job really patient? 
Was he? Was Job in actual fact patient? So I went back and I read quickly and skimmed the book of Job. And I wrote down dozens and dozens of statements. I will give you but two. Uh, He stated, let the day perish on which I was born. Let the day perish on which I was born. What's What's he saying? I wish I had never been born. Is he patient? Is he a pillar of patience? On another occasion, he stated the following. Why did I not die at birth? Why did I not die at birth? So I ask you again, is Job a patient man in the reckoning of God? And this is the wonder of God's compassion. And this is the wonder of God's mercy that in God's reckoning, Job was patient. Oh, that gives me so much hope. In God's estimation, Job was patient. Why? Where the bent, the inclination of the heart is right, the infirmities of God's people are not mentioned. Oh, praise God. Where the inclination is right, where the heart is fundamentally, foundationally sound, the imperfections and the infirmities of God's people are not mentioned. That in God's reckoning, Job was a patient man. He was a man that excelled in patience. And he did not reckon, he did not take into account any of his murmuring, any of his complaining, but he knew the true inclination of his heart. Oh, our God abounds in compassion and mercy. What a tremendous example for us. So there are your three examples to follow. Farmers, prophets, and Job. And there we sit discussing these things. And you're coming around a little bit. And I'm taking you back now to the commands. Be patient. Establish your hearts. Do not grumble against one another. But you're still not quite convinced. And so here are three truths to cherish. Three truths to cherish. The first truth is this, the coming of the Lord. The second truth is this, the purpose of the Lord. And the third truth is this, the mercy of the Lord. When we find ourselves the victims of injustice, again, you fill in the scenario, you complete the thought. When we find ourselves the victims of injustice, quite often, one of the most common statements from our lips, one of the most familiar cries one, uh, in terms of a, a, a reflex reaction is this. I do not see what God is doing in this. I, do not, I, I cannot discern the hand of God. I don't know why he allowed that to happen. I cannot even begin to grasp why I am in the midst of this. I I can't see. It's just this thick mist, this thick cloud. And I cannot discern what it is God is doing. And the question is is simply this. What is God's purpose? What is God doing? This seems so pointless. This seems to, to not have any rhyme nor reason. 
Well, James addresses and he answers that question head on. And he points firstly to the fact that God will do something. Here's the truth to cherish the coming of the Lord. Verse 7, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Eighth verse, you also be patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And so here I am, I have been the victim of this situation, the victim of this individual, this is what I'm going through, and I have no idea why, 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 why? And James assures us, rest, rest, be patient, establish your heart. God will do something. He is coming again. There will be a day of reckoning. Do you realize the coming of the Lord is addressed, spoken of, more than 300 times in the New Testament? There is more emphasis placed on the coming of the Lord in the New Testament than any other biblical truth or doctrine. He is coming. And when he comes, he will usher in a day of reckoning. And what a, what a reassuring thought to understand that history is not circular. History is linear. And how this rescues me, how this saves me from the tyranny of the present. I'm so engulfed in this moment. I'm so overwhelmed by these circumstances. And I just can't get my mind around it. I don't see any end to it. And it is so unfair. It is unfair. It is unfair. And James says, you be patient. You establish your heart. And you do not grumble. And you understand God will do something. The Lord is coming. Secondly, the Lord is doing something. That comes out of verse 11, doesn't it? Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. There was a purpose to it. James doesn't really build on it here, does he? Why doesn't he build on it here? Come on now. Why doesn't he build on it here, the purpose of the Lord in the midst of suffering? Because he already has. Where? Come on, back to chapter 1. What was the very first thing he impressed upon us way back in chapter 1? What does he say in the second verse? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God isn't doing anything. Oh, He is doing something, friend. And our God is so wonderful. He is so marvelous, however unpleasant the circumstances might be. And however oppressive the conditions might be. Oh, this knowledge of this fact that the Lord has a purpose in it. He has a purpose for you. He has a purpose for me, and the purpose far exceeds our wildest imaginations. It is His glory through our conformity to the likeness of the Son of God. That He is doing a work in us that will last for all eternity. And that will be, it will serve this purpose. 
for the eternal revelation of the glory of his power, of his wisdom, and of his goodness. Oh, he isn't doing anything. Oh, he is. He will do something. That's the coming of the Lord. He is doing something. That's the purpose of the Lord. And don't miss this thirdly. He has done something. That's the mercy of the Lord. Right at the end of verse 11, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. You go back to chapter 1. I mean, James just gives us a few snapshots of, the God, of God, doesn't he? Back in chapter 1, he emphasizes the fact that God is exceedingly generous. He also emphasizes there that God is immutably good. You come into chapter 5 and he, and, he, and he expresses the fact that God is absolutely sovereign. And now here in verse 11, he makes it known that God is abundantly merciful. Where ought their mind's eye to go when they hear of the Lord's mercy? Where ought our mind to go at the mere mention, the mere utterance of that word mercy to what the Lord has done? Has done where? Upon a place called Calvary and upon a cross where the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, the beloved Son of God, became sin for us bearing the wrath of God in full and turning that wrath away, away, that whereby whosoever believes in the Son might drink of a bottomless fountain of mercy. Oh, my sins. My sins are as high, higher than Everest. Oh, a mountain and a multitude of sins. But the mercy of God covers them all. And His mercy, His mercy not only makes things right for God's people, His mercy keeps things right within God's people. And as I find myself in unpleasant circumstances, as I find myself as the audience, those who received this letter found themselves facing this grave injustice. Yes, I hear these three great truths. The Lord is coming. The Lord has a purpose. And the Lord is merciful. And by embracing these three truths, cherishing these truths, cherishing God, esteeming God, and the revelation of God in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, what do I find? I find the impetus to do what? We're not going to like it. Do what? Obey. Be patient. Establish your hearts. And do not grumble against one another. That is how we handle injustice. That is how we cope with unfairness. We obey three commands. We follow three examples. And we cherish three truths. We sang of it earlier let me share with you now just a stanza from one of the songs we sang in the opening, and then I'll close with a word of prayer. Now redemption, long expected, see in solemn pomp appear. All his saints by man rejected, now shall meet him in the air. Hallelujah, 
Hallelujah. See the day of God appear. Our Heavenly Father, may you give us eyes to see that day by faith and to make it a present reality in our lives by which we orchestrate our lives. A truth that shapes our desires, our values, our dreams. A truth that dictates our aspirations and our longings and our affections. We pray, our Father, that as we have immersed ourselves in your word, that your spirit might take it and help us to understand it, help us to apply it. We love you, our God, and we declare that you alone are great, you alone are good, and we pray that your will would be done in our lives this day. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen.